Day and night and night and day, the living creatures give their praise. To Him who lives eternally, they never cease from saying, Holy, holy is Yahweh. Hello, welcome to Walking in the Word. My name is Shel Wagner. I'm so glad you came to join me today. Today we're going to be having part six of the Kings and Prophet introduction series. Today we're going to be talking about the prophetic voice. So let me go ahead and add my PowerPoint to the screen and we will get started. So looking at the prophetic voice. Now, one of the things that I pulled out to get started was a book called The Roots of the Federal Reserve by Dr. Laura Sanger. And um, I, I wanted to talk, we were just talking about Carthage in my last um, video. And so this is a picture of ancient Carthage. And what we learned was that this was a place of settlement during the drought that Elijah um, really called down from heaven and pronounced that there would be a three and a half year drought and a famine ensued on the land of Israel. And we were just looking at all of that. And uh, the widow of Zarephath, you know, Elijah went to, and um, she ended up feeding him with uh, some water and a little bit of bread. And then her vessels didn't run, uh, didn't never ran dry. She always had olive oil and and flour in her containers to feed herself and her son until the rains returned. So it's a it's a great story. But what I wanted to look at was when I looked at this ancient city of Carthage, you can see it's a seaport city, and you see here what what this. Um, off to the right, I have a picture of this ancient city. And so we can tell that, yes, it was a seafaring city. But do you see what's right there? It's the circle within the circle and the pole in the circle. And we, we see this everywhere. So I wanted to read a little bit about what Dr. Sanger wrote in her book concerning this. She said, a circumspunct, a circumpunct is a phrase coined by Dr. Brown author of The Lost Symbol, has carried sacred meaning across diverse cultures since the archaic Neolithic period. It has been an enduring symbol used in both pagan and occult rituals. Its most ancient roots are found in the Egyptian worship of the sun god, where it was employed as a solar phallic symbol used to represent the eternal nature of the sun god Ra, Accordingly, the Egyptian hieroglyph for the sun is a circumpunct. The circumpunct is a two-dimensional phallic symbol with the dot representing the penis and the circle the womb. Egypt has a great many ob obelisk, towers, and pyramids covering its landscape, all of which are symbolic expressions of sun worship. These structures represent the erect male organ pointing toward the sun, which pagans believed was the source of life. 
Now, if you can see these pictures of St. Peter's Square Basilica in Rome, right in front of the Vatican, this is also their symbol. So we can see the circle with the phallic symbol obelisk right in the middle. We can see this aerial picture. It looks very similar to what was in ancient Carthage. Of course, we see the same thing going on in Washington, D.C., you know, here's the aerial shot showing all the different circles and the, the large phallic symbol and another overhead shot right there showing the exact same thing. So we are not so far removed as we would like to think from what is going on. Um, on another note, I am excited to announce that uh, Dr. Sanger and Dr. Monzo will be on a show with me as two guests in May. So we've got a while to wait. It won't happen until May 3rd, but I am really, really looking forward to that interview and discussion between the two of them. So I hope you'll go ahead and mark your calendars for that because it promises to be a very, very interesting discussion. All right. So continuing on in our study for the rest of the chapters that are in First Kings, we find that Elijah uh, confronts Ahab and the prophets of Jezebel. Elijah flees and Yah comforts him. Elisha is called, right? The wars of Ahab, Naboth's vineyard. We see everything that happened. We were reading about that on the last episode that we did. Ahab dies. Jehoshaphat reigns in Yehuda. Ahaziah reigns in Yasharel. And then we begin the whole... Um, I'm going to end up reading through all of 2 Kings chapters 1 through, I, I, I might just do 1 and 2 to start with. We'll see if I want to add any more information any further than that. But what, what I want to look at here before we go on is just a little bit more of information um, of what's happening in this period. So we begin to see the prophetic in action with Elijah and the confrontation with Jezebel's prophets of Baal. So there is an author I really like. Uh, it is the late Stephen L. Cates. He was a actually a Baptist theologian and a preacher for his career, died in 2005 at the age of 90, but he wrote a myriad of commentaries, and they are absolutely wonderful. So this is his commentary out of a book called An Introduction to the Old Testament and Its Study. And I'm reading starting at page 281. So let's see if I can read that to you. In fact, I'm going to just go ahead and make that a little bigger. It'll be easier to see. Okay, so the Hebrew prophets were some of the most disturbing men who ever lived. Anyone who would seriously seek to come to grips with the message of these men must take into account not only what they said, but also who they were. Except for Jesus of Nazareth and his disciples, probably no single group of men made as great an impact upon the world as the Old Testament prophets. The prophets were essentially people whose minds were able to comprehend both God and man. Um, at the same time, their hearts and minds were sensitized by the voice and spirit of God. They proclaimed not general truths, but God's special word to a specific historical situation. Unfortunately, too many times we have thought of them primarily as foretellers and 
foretellers of what was going to happen. To the contrary, they were primarily foretellers, pouring forth God's awareness and understanding of what was happening at that moment. In so doing, they announced what was going to happen if God's people did not change their ways, repent and turn back to his way. The prophets were not dealing with a world that had no meaning, but with one that was deaf to the meaning of what was going on. The words of the prophets were stern, rebuking, and castigating. To read these words even today is a wrench on the emotions, a strain on the imagination. The prophets were people who felt deeply. They agonized over the heartbreak of God and suffered with the oppression of their people. They bluntly announced that their society was on the road to utter destruction. They were not unafraid of the people with power, but they were so afraid of what was going to happen that they faced them with audacity. I had to look that one up. And that audacity is a willingness to take bold risk. The acts which shocked the prophets are all too often the kinds of things which occur daily in our world, the events recorded in contemporary newspapers, which are accepted as the normal results of social dynamics, were precisely the kinds of things that sent the prophets into a tirade. Modern people would call the prophets hysterical, but the prophets would say that our insensitivity to what is happening around us is far worse. The prophets were not philosophers exploring the issues of human thought. They were activists concerned with the actuality of life, the plight of humanity, the blindness which never saw God at work and the deafness which never heard him. Abraham Heschel was, has well said that two fundamental issues frighten the prophets. A people may be dying without being aware of it. A people may be able to survive, yet refuse to make use of that ability. This raised the messages of the prophets to their highest levels. Perhaps the most amazing feature of the prophets is that they were tolerated at all by the Hebrew people. This very fact is a testimony that Israel recognized the voice of God in the prophets' proclamations. The prophets did look to the future. However, they were concerned not so much with predicting what would happen as what had to happen. Yet even their concern with the future was always aimed at having meaning for the audience who they addressed. Their prime concern was always those to whom they spoke. Concern for the people also made the prophets intercessors. They saw themselves as members of the heavenly council, seeking to advise God in his dealings with his people. They sought to delay judgment, to lay hold of God's merciful nature in order to give their people one more chance. Ultimately, however, the prophets' relationship to God and to Israel kept them constantly under tension. The revelation of God was a constant demand rather than a comfort. It challenged, exhorted, 
transformed and forced decision. The prophets heard God's word and sensed his heart, but they also sensed the hurt and agony, the stubbornness and the rebellion of their people. The dual tension under which they lived is like rewiring an old house with the power turned on. Any moment could be the very last. Every moment had to be taken seriously. There was no place for carelessness and no time for levity. There was only time for the message of the moment in the hope that this next moment might be better. Prophets were a part of the society of most of the nations in the ancient Near East. In almost every nation, there were those who announced the will of the deity to their people. Generally, however, this was done only by request. Those ancient prophets officiated at a shrine. And if people wished to know the will of their God, they went to the prophet, paid a fee, asked their question, and received the answer in the form of an oracle. The prophets cast lots, practiced some form of divination, and went into trances or states of ecstasy in order to communicate with their God, little g, and get his message. That kind of prophet was also found in Israel. Saul was going to see Samuel to find out the location of his lost donkeys. At the time, he was crowned Israel's first king. Saul also joined in with roving bands of ecstatic prophets on at least two occasions. Furthermore, the professional prophets many of the kings kept at their court were apparently of this sort, giving the king guidance only when he asked for it. In Israel, however, prophecy developed a unique dimension, not due to anything different in Israel, but to a difference in the God of Israel. There, the prophets became spokesmen for Yahweh because God had a message for his people. The prophets of Israel did not wait until their people had a question. They proclaimed God's message when God spoke. We see evidence of this transition in the biblical description of Shaul's visit to Samuel. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. The earlier prophets had been seers, those who dreamed dreams, saw visions, and otherwise saw what God wished. Israel's prophets became something else. They became nabi, nabi prophets. This word apparently refers to one who pours out God's message unbidden. This particular function of the Hebrew prophet is also seen in the description of the relationship which existed between Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh. See, I shall make you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh. Exodus 7 verses 1 and 2. The point is that the prophet in Israel did not initiate the message. The prophetic message was initiated by God. The prophet was the mouthpiece through 
whom God spoke. The Hebrew prophets Nabi were described in other ways. Two of the more descriptive titles are the man of God and the servant of Yahweh. Such terms indicate the special relationship which existed between Yahweh and his prophet. The special relationship is probably more clearly seen in the call of the prophets than anywhere else. In general, the prophets were not people who were involved in religion in any professional way. Even when they were, their vocation was involved with the priesthood. Yet whatever their vocation, a time came when they were confronted by God. Amos described it vividly when he said, the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people. Amos 7.15 From whatever walk of life they came, after that initial confrontation with Yahweh, they became spokesmen to their nation and its leaders. The first and great prophet of Israel was Moses. Following him, others were scattered along such as Deborah, Samuel, Nathan, Gad, Elijah, and Elisha. With the 8th century, however, something new happened. This was the time of the rise of some of the most influential prophets Israel ever had. Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, and Micah. The latter part of the 6th and early part of the 5th centuries produced Jeremiah and Ezekiel, along with several minor prophets. There were a few prophets after the exile, but none ever seemed to have reached the great stature of earlier prophets. Gradually, Hebrew prophetism died out. Many reasons have been offered, but none are convincing. It simply appears that prophetism had filled its place on the stage of God's revelation and then given way to other means of proclaiming God's word. Perhaps the best suggestion is that with the rise of the scribes, Israel had a written revelation from God and needed less the proclamation by inspired spokesmen. The book of 2 Kings begins with wars, an evil king, the prophetic voice, and miracles. Elijah's taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire drawn by horses of fire in chapter 2, and Elisha begins his ministry. All right. Well, that really kind of brings us with an explanation. I really enjoyed that out of Stephen uh, Kate's book, you know, just thinking about what is that prophetic voice and the fact that they were absolutely drawn and compelled by Yah with the message that they had out of compassion for his people. It was always the message of Teshuvah, repent change, turn around and go in the opposite direction because where you're headed is a very dangerous territory. And I certainly see that in our society today. And it's always my hope and prayer that what we do here at Heart of the Tribes helps someone to realize this is not the right road. Let's let's practice Teshuvah and get back on the right road. All right. Well, blessings and hope you guys enjoy this series and that you'll join me when we read the books already. Bye-bye and shalom. Day and night and night and day The living creatures give their praise 
Social.